am glad you're here. This little podcast is a safe space to talk about the movies we love, the good and the bad, acknowledging their issues and celebrating their successes with a healthy dose of nostalgia thrown in for good measure. And because I'm a librarian by day and don't need an excuse to talk books at the end of our conversation, I'll give you a few book recommendations you might like if this movie is your cup of tea. Before we dive into today's movie pick, that part is always so hard for me to say, just saying, 1989's Field of Dreams, a quick ask. If you like the podcast and want a free and super easy way to support what I do, please consider rating or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen. You can also just share the podcast. That's kind of the easier way to do things and the much more appreciated sharing with someone or someones you know that you think might enjoy the fun as well. Word of mouth marketing. I would be ever so appreciative. So settle in. I think this is going to be a long conversation because I found a lot of interesting tidbits and I love this movie. I decided that eventually I am going to have to sit down and do an episode where it is my top 10 and I'm going to have to, because I say a lot, this is one of my favorites and you can't really say that for every single movie. Um, you, you, you've got to pick eventually and I know it has to do with mood and that kind of thing, but I'm pretty sure this is in my top 10. So to come a, a podcast episode where I attempt to determine my top 10 favorite movies. Uh, but this one is pretty special too, because this is one of the few movies where I've been to the actual set. Uh, I've been by some things. When I was in New York City, I went looking for the shop that was supposed to be the shop around the corner. Doesn't look the same. We passed a few other things uh, like in Central Park or um, Washington Square Park, you know, those kinds of things, especially in New York City. But this was the first that when you pull down the drive at the location of the Kinsella house where the field is in Iowa, you you feel, I mean, there's elements of it that, of course, like a, a souvenir shop that's been built and that kind of thing. And I was there a few years before, um, before I was before COVID. So a few years before they built that second stadium, um, that second field where they now do the kind of retro games, the field of dreams games. Uh, but you, you drive down and you feel like you are driving to watch the game in the movie. Like you are one of those cars at the end of the very end of the movie and you have come to experience baseball and the game and what reminds you what it's like to be a kid. And it, it was just, we, we were on our way to South Dakota. My dad's like, you know what, if we're having to cut through Iowa anyway, that is where we're going to stop for the night. So the first night, first day, we are driving straight to Dyersville, Iowa. And we get into Iowa and I was like, huh, there is a very distinct aroma. <laughs> in this state. You just smelled cow. Lots and lots of cows. I mean, at times it was rather overwhelming. Even on the field, uh, once you get to the location, to the Field of Dreams field, you're like, mm, it's just a lot of cow smell. And we pulled up and there was, it was a really interesting night. We were there just a couple hours, maybe an maybe just an hour before the place was supposed to close. The house was not open. They were doing some, I think, renovations and things to the house. But there's the barn and there's a house and there's the little bleachers and there's the field. And there was an, it was an evening where these people, these artists had come out and they'd set up their easels and they were going to be painting that evening at the field. And so we're just walking around kind of exploring. You get to go onto the field. We went up to the, the corn and you had to take the stereotypical tourist 
photo of you stepping into the corn, um, but you're sitting on the bleachers and it's just a surreal kind of feeling. And then we turn our heads and <laughs> no joke, there are baseball players on there in the old timey outfit. And you're like, what is going on? It was just kind of crazy. And then you see some of them getting out of car and you're out of a car and you're like, okay, okay. But they had come to play um, so that these artists could then paint. And it was just kind of fascinating. It's a, it was quiet. I was glad there were not a whole lot of people there. I mean, there were some other folks kind of meandering around, but it was just kind of a perfect evening. It was a little chilly. Uh, it was in October, I do believe. Like I said, we were on our way to South Dakota which has been one of my favorite road trips of all time. And I fell in love with South Dakota and Wyoming. And I think maybe I'm supposed to live in the West somewhere. I don't know. I don't like snow though. So maybe not. Uh, but we actually got hit by a blizzard on the way <laughs> to South Dakota to Rapid City. And we didn't know if we were actually going to make it. It was kind of touch and go. There were semis off the road. We're in my little Kia Soul, which is, you know, not necessarily the car you want to be in, in a snowstorm. Uh, it was just, it was, it was a very fun road trip, but that first night in Dyersville, Iowa to see the Field of Dreams field uh, was something pretty special. The, there's not much to the town. We stayed at this little kind of really old hotel. We ate at this small family owned diner. Uh, so it just has that small town feel, but uh, it was pretty special. If you can ever make it, I highly recommend it, especially if you are a fan of the movie. It is worth going to. I have just created something totally illogical. That's what I like about it. If you build it, he will come. If you build it, he will come. If you build what, who will come? Insane. I hate it when that happens. Me too. Who's hearing voices? Ray is. <laughs> I think I know what if you build it, he will come means. Ooh, why do I not think this is such a good thing? Daddy, there's a man up there on your lawn. Are you a ghost? What do you think? You look real to me. You couldn't see it. This is really interesting. You believed in the magic. It happened. Isn't that enough? Annie, it's more than that. I feel it as strongly as I've ever felt anything in my life. There's a reason. Go the distance. Did you hear the voice, too? Did you hear it? Go the distance. Yes. Our grave is dead. He died in 1972. Are you Moonlight Graham? No one's called me Moonlight Graham in 50 years. Unbelievable. It's more than that. It's perfect. You build a baseball field in the middle of nowhere, and you sit here and you stare at nothing. This field, this game, it's a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good. Hey, is this heaven? No. It's Iowa. Kevin Costner, Amy Madigan, James Earl Jones, Ray Liotta, Burt Lancaster. Sometimes, when you believe the impossible, the incredible comes true. Field of Dreams.
All right. So a little bit about the movie before we hop into a very long summary. And again, I'm apologizing up front, but I (laughs) I think we're going to be here a little while. Field of Dreams was directed by Phil Alden Robinson for directing such an amazing movie. Robinson doesn't have a lot on his filmography, which kind of surprised me. I, I feel like after this movie, a lot of doors would have opened him and maybe they did and he just chose not to walk through them. I don't know, but there's just not a whole lot to, to his filmography. His first directing credit was for a couple episodes of the George Burns Comedy Week show. Uh, then a movie called In the Mood, which I had not heard of, but I need we need to li- listen to this plot. I just could not believe the plot of this movie. A 14-year-old nicknamed the Woo Woo Kid is a teenage Casanova who has been having affairs and runs away to marry two older women, mothers themselves fascinating the public and the media with his romantic prowess. There is no way that movie would get made today. It was a a flop. Of course it was. You have a 14-year-old boy child wooing older women and running off to get married to them. I just... Cannot fathom that. Uh, Then came Field of Dreams. He did direct Sneakers with Robert Redford. So there was that. Some more TV episodes. The Sum of Fear, All Fears with, I think Ben Affleck is in that. And then The Angriest Man in Brooklyn. And I am not familiar with that one. But that's just about all that is on his filmography. He is also credited, though, with the screenplay, along with, of course, Canadian novelist W.P. Kinsella, who wrote a novel called Shoeless Joe in 1982. The novel, well, it was kind of a short story that was expanded, and it was Shoeless Joe Jackson Comes to Iowa. So it was first published, this short story, in the 80s, 1980, in a collection by the same name. And so Kinsella kind of first developed the idea for the story while attending the Iowa Writers Workshop, and he kind of decided to incorporate the stories he told about the Black, you know, the Black Sox scandal, imagining if Shoeless Joe Jackson came back to the same city Kinsella was living in in Iowa City. I kind of like that he wrote himself into the story. That's an interesting choice. The book is a little different than the movie. So Ray is still a corn farmer in the book. Uh, He sells a wife named Annie and a daughter named Karen. But the backstory of a rocky relationship with his father is kind of gone. And instead, Ray is just in love with the rich history of baseball, specifically his hero, Shoeless Joe Jackson. So when he starts to hear voices in the cornfield, he decides to build a baseball diamond as a chance for that lost hero to find redemption. And then he's off on a cross-country journey to find not Terrence Mann, but at the time, J.D. Salinger within the novel. Robinson reads Shoeless Joe in 81, and he likes it so much that he brings it to a producer that he knows. And this producer works for 20th Century Fox. And in fact, for like part of the time, this guy was the president of 20th Century Fox. And he just keeps telling him and mentioning that he thinks this book should be adapted into a film. But the studio always turned down that suggestion because they felt like the project was just too esoteric and non-commercial. Meanwhile, Robinson went ahead with the script. This was a passion project for him. He decides to go ahead and write a script. And he's at the time, frequently consulting with Kinsella for advice on the adaptation. And finally, this producer slash president of Fox, uh, he actually left Fox in 86. He started pitching the adaptation to other studios and Universal picks it up in 1987. So 
I also read that apparently Salinger threatened the production with a lawsuit if his name was used. I couldn't find why, why he didn't want his name used. I guess just, you know, Salinger being Salinger. So Robinson changed it to the character, changed the character to Terrence Mann and wrote it with James Earl Jones in mind specifically because he thought it would be funny to see Ray try to kidnap such a big man with such a big personality. Ray Liotta was first thought to be too young for the role. Robinson envisioned someone a little older than Costner to serve as a father surrogate, but in the end, he liked Liotta's, quote, sense of danger and ambiguity. And last little casting tidbit, James Stewart was offered the role of Moonlight Graham. I think that that just kind of changes that whole section of the movie for me, if it was James Stewart. Uh, He turned it down, and so did Burt Lancaster originally, but a friend of his that was a big baseball fan told him that he had to work on the film. Uh, So the film, of course, Feel the Dream stars Kevin Costner as Ray Kinsella, James Earl Jones as Terrence Mann, Ray Liotta as Shoeless Joe Jackson, Amy Madigan as Annie Kinsella. I love her in this movie. Love her. Gabby Hoffman, a little baby Gabby Hoffman as Karen Kinsella. Timothy Busfield as Mark, who is Annie's horrible brother. Burt Lancaster as Dr. Moonlight Graham. Frank Whaley as Archie Graham and Dwyer Brown as John Kinsella. Sounds like Kevin Costner wasn't their first pick either, or at least wasn't originally considered for the role. They didn't think he would want to do another baseball film so soon after Bull Durham, which, spoiler, we'll be talking about later this month because it is my favorite of all-time baseball movies. So the role of Ray was offered to Tom Hanks, but then Hanks turned it down and Costner said he would do it. Box office report, the movie had an estimated budget of $15 million. It grossed just over $500,000 during its opening weekend in April of 1989. So not a big opening weekend, but it would go on to make over $84.4 million worldwide. So a slow start, but it picked up steam as it went along. And now, of course, it is kind of a cult classic. What else came out that year? Also out in April of 1989. <laughs> I love this list so much. Here we go. Cyborg with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Major League with Tom Berenger and Charlie Sheen. Spoiler, that one's coming up next week on the pod. Say Anything with John Cusack and Ioni Sky. We're going to have to do that one eventually. There's a lot to talk about in Say Anything. It's one you love and then kind of makes you squidgy at the same time. She's Out of Control with Tony Danza. I think that's the one where his daughter kind of has a glam up and he doesn't know how to deal with it. Kickboxer with Jean-Claude Van Damme, Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, and Teen Witch with Robin Lively, which we've already discussed on the pod. You'll have to go back and listen to that episode. It's not one of my favorite movies of all time, but just a really bad movie that I absolutely adore. What an odd month, though. Two big baseball movies and two Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. Just fascinating. We talked about 89 not too long ago in our conversation on Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. If you remember, that's when uh, Kim Basinger bought and lost an entire town in Georgia when we were reading through the events on the Wikipedia page. Uh, But just a quick recap, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade was the highest grossing film of that year, followed by Batman, Back to the Future Part 2, Look Who's Talking, Dead Poet Society, The Little Mermaid, Lethal Weapon 2, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Ghostbusters 2, and Born on the 4th of July. Now for the reviews. 
So Field of Dreams has an 88% on the tomato meter on Rotten Tomatoes. And just a reminder, that is the critic score. So an 88% critic score, which is one of the best we've had so far. And an 86% audience score. Usually they're not that close. And I kind of find it hard to believe that the audience score isn't higher than the critic score. But I'm just glad to see the critic score so high. The consensus reads, Field of Dreams is sentimental, but in the best way. It's a mix of fairy tale, baseball, and family togetherness. <laughs> the family togetherness part makes me laugh. Reviewers really liked to compare it to It's a Wonderful Life. And I'm not entirely sure I get the comparison. One reviewer called it a fantasy fable like the Capra classic. So in that realm, yes, I can kind of see that. But the reviewer would also go on to say he thought that Robinson should have kind of built up the town more, made the citizens kind of a more, he called it palpable presence, like it's a wonderful life. And that comparison baffles me. It does not work for me. George was intricately linked to the town and its people in Bedford Falls. It's a movie about, it's a wonderful life. It's a movie about choices and consequences and kind of how everyday lives are intertwined. And that's not what Field of Dreams is about. It's about a man grieving the loss of a relationship with his father that he never had, about a love of a game and kind of the power of redemption, at least in my eyes. So I, I don't fully get the It's a Wonderful Life comparison. Another reviewer compared the two movies because of sentimentality. And I think he was heading in the right direction, at least. Then good old Roger Ebert who gave the film a perfect four stars said, quote, this is the kind of movie Frank Capra might have directed and James Stewart might have starred in a movie about dreams. So even Raj felt that way. So I, I don't know. In the end, what I know is that the reviews that called it sappy and shamelessly sentimental made me sad and annoyed. And their favorite movies are probably some metaphorical art house flicks that are just more pretentious than entertaining. So the reviewers just keep making me upset, but that's okay. That's okay. They are allowed to do that. They are allowed to have their own opinions, just like we here on the pod are allowed to have our own opinions. But now it's time for a breakdown of the summary by act, a summary in three parts. We've got act one, the setup, act two, rising action, and act three, the resolution. So we're looking at the movie through the lens of storytelling. Act one, the setup, we should be introduced to our characters and to the main plot of the movie. It should be setting all of that up, which I think it does pretty well. There's a lot of exposition in it, especially here at the beginning, which we'll talk about. But overall, uh, it does it fairly quickly and then gets us into the big bulk of the movie, which is, of course, Act 2, Rising Action. But Act 1, the story begins with a voiceover narration from Ray telling the story of his father and their kind of rocky relationship. So John Kinsella fought in France in World War One. I. I do have to, before I go on, I have to say I did a... <laughs> A lot of, t spend a lot of time doing math in my head. Like, how does this work? When would he have, and he actually tells it all, but it just seems, it doesn't seem right to me that his dad fought in World War One. I. I, I don't know. Time is a con a construct. I don't know. It, it just was a lot I had to work through before I could really enjoy the movie, even though I've seen this movie a hundred times. So John fights in World War One, moves to Chicago, and becomes a diehard White Sox fan. His heart is then broken not only when the White Sox lose the pennant, but then they're also accused, the, the White Sox eight are accused of throwing a big series. And within that group is, of course, Shoeless Joe Jackson, who is John's hero. 
John played in the minors for a couple of years, but his baseball career just never really took off. He ends up moving to New York, gets married, has Ray, and then becomes a widower. So he is raising Ray on his own. And John and Ray kind of clash over uh, many things, including which baseball team you should root for in New York City, and then kind of everything else after that. So after high school, Ray heads west for college. He wants to get as far away from his dad as he can, so he ends up going to Berkeley. That's where he meets Annie, a girl from Iowa. They are married. John dies a few years after that. Uh, their daughter Karen is born. Annie convinces Ray to buy a farm, even though he's not a farmer. <laughs> and then he starts to hear the voices. It is a lot of exposition at the beginning. It's kind of a montage of pictures and videos and that kind of thing. But then it dives right into the plot. Ray's out working in the cornfields when he hears the whisper of a voice. If you build it, he will come. Annie doesn't hear it. Karen doesn't hear it. But Ray clearly hears it and it drives him a little batty. And that evening, or at least I feel like we're supposed to believe it was that evening. The whisper wakes Ray up in the middle of the night and he kind of asks the voice, what is he supposed to build and for who? But the voice just doesn't answer. I love that Annie never once questions his sanity. She's just like, okay, you heard a voice. What do you think it means? Kind of thing. So he ends up broaching this topic of voices in cornfields. It's one of my favorite scenes. He's at, I it's not a feed store. Maybe it is a feed store. It's a farmer store. And he's talking to all these really old farmers. And he's like, is that a thing? Do you know, farmers start to hear voices in their own field. And they just look at him like he is crazy. Like, oh my goodness, they're really worried about him. And that, to be honest, is really the only time, well, the first out of two times that you see the town. That is it. So this need to have the town in there more does not make any sense to me because it has absolutely nothing to do with the town. So I, I'm not quite sure where that reviewer was going with that kind of thing. So uh, he then hears the voice again later that day. He's out working in the field. And then he sees kind of a mirage of a baseball diamond next to the house, stadium light shining down, and a man in the outfield who he thinks is Shoeless Joe Jackson. So that night in bed, Ray can't get this idea out of his head. He, he feels like he needs to build the stadium. And Joe, he can't get Joe out of his his brain and that the game of baseball. So Annie asks him if he's serious about building a baseball diamond in the cornfield. And Ray tells her that he's afraid of becoming his father, a man who has never, who was never spontaneous, who was just kind of stuck. And you fall in love with Annie so much in this movie, because without hesitation, she tells him that if he really feels like he should do this, then he should do it. She's completely supportive right off the bat. And that ends act one. You see that this is going to be about a man, his relationship with his father, at least the very, at the very least, kind of the memory of his father, and that there's some kind of magical realism element that brings a bit of fantasy without going over the top or moving into cheesy territory. Magical realism is one of my favorite genres, not only in fiction when I, you know, when I want to sit down with a good book and kind of just get whisked away in a kind of whimsical tale, but movies too. I think of movies like Practical Magic or Shock a Lot, these where there's just a touch of magic within the real world and the magic isn't the point. Um, it's more about the relationships than the magic itself. I just, I really love it. And so this has that kind of bit to it. And you immediately understand who Ray is and 
who Annie is. And she, I think, is just as important to understand as Ray. And it's that kind of character development that carries you through the rest of the movie. That is, I think, the most important thing that this setup does is provide that character development for Ray and for Annie and the the partnership that they have um, and the trust that they have in one another. So that's act one. Ray's going to build this field. He's hearing voices. He's going to build this field. He has a bad relationship with his dad. Act two, rising action. And so Ray kind of plows a big portion of the field. He It sounds like he still has more field to go. <laughs> he still has a crop, but he, it's a big portion of his field. And he builds a baseball diamond, adding stadium lights and bleachers, just like the Mirage. And the town thinks he's nuts. So they know something is going on. They think that he's going to lose his farm because he needs every bit of that crop to make ends meet. And now he's taken a big part of that away. And we get more voiceover. Ray, it's a really kind of sweet Ray telling his daughter, Karen, about Shoeless Joe Jackson, who took the payoff, but no one could ever prove that he did anything to help throw the game. And then he's talking to Annie about it on the pitcher's mound one night under the stars, reminiscing about a time when his father actually saw Shoeless Joe Jackson years later, later playing kind of under a made up name because he got he got banned from the game for a, for a lifetime. So he's playing on this kind of minor league team. I don't even think it was the minor leagues. It was like a B C D E league. <laughs> uh, and he, and he sees that it, you know, he's older and he's gained weight and that kind of thing. But, um, Ray says, dad used to say no one could hit like shoeless Joe. And he says it with a smile on his face, a smile that Annie had never seen before, when he was talking about his dad. So you already see that with Shoeless Joe and the game of baseball, that there's a wound that is needing healing and that has possibility for healing inside of Ray. So winter comes and goes and there's no sign of him, the whoever that was supposed to come. If you build it, he will come. Who is he? Nothing happens. And then they're starting to get worried. It's the next planning seating planting season, things don't look good. And, and Annie's getting nervous that they might lose the farm. She's, she's telling him, you know, like we, we might be able to break even with this field gone. Maybe that, I mean, that is not a given. It's going to be very hard to do. I don't, you know, I'm honestly not sure it's going to happen. Uh, so there, you know, things are going to be very, very tight. And as they're having this conversation about money at the table, Karen runs up and she's like, daddy, daddy, daddy. And he's, he's frustrated because he made a huge gamble and, and his family could be at stake, but he really believes in this too. And so he can't kind of keeps shushing her. And then she says, well, daddy, there's a man on your lawn. And, you know, in that kind of darkest moment, everything starts to happen. So he looks out the window and there is a ball player in an old fashioned uniform standing in the outfield, just kind of looking around in wonder. And so neither Ray nor Annie seem startled by this. I, I, I find that fascinating. They're just amazed. Oh my goodness. It worked. <laughs> Instead of like, there's a guy standing in our yard and it'll, like, I would be freaked out a little bit, but no, especially now, I guess, because we also have like children of the corn in our head. And so people just coming out of the cornfield aren't always benevolent individuals. Sometimes they're children who want to kill you, but they're just like, oh my goodness, it worked. And they're so amazed and unfazed. And it's just another reason why I love this movie. And that's when Ray meets Shoeless Joe Jackson, as he was in his prime. 
This was my first Ray Liotta. It, it would be years later when I saw him in Goodfellas in college. And I watched Goodfellas once and then I watched it like 17 times. I didn't become obsessed with it, but sort of, <laughs> sort of became. But Shoeless Joe, that's the role I always think of when I think of Ray Liotta. He kind of becomes a caricature of himself in his later years, but this role is subtle. It's quiet. It's a bit intimidating, just the way Leota could do it. He So Shoeless Joe, he starts to field some fly balls. It's a funny scene where Ray tries to hit a ball out into the outfield and it just kind of, he he misses it. It just glazes off the bat and kind of goes a few feet in front of him. And he's like totally embarrassed because his heroes in the field and he couldn't get the ball there. He's like, no, no, I'll get one out to you. Um, so he hits some fly balls out, you know, to the outfield for Joe. And then Joe comes up and he says, can I hit, will you pitch me some? Uh, but it's when he monologues about the game. So he hits a few balls and then He's sitting there just thinking about the game and his love of the game, the sounds, the smells, the memories of traveling between stadiums. He says, I'd have played for nothing. It guts me every time to see, and I know it's a character, but that idea of loving something so much that you would do it for free is is so pure and so sincere and just so absent from anything we really know now it's it's a hustler's game now and you you do it to make money so that you can buy a house and all of this stuff you you don't typically do it just because you love it uh it's it's a chore it's a job and it was not a job to joe he lived and breathed baseball so annie and karen come out to say hello and there's a moment when you see joe stop he's he's Come, he's coming to the edge of the field to say hi to them, and he stops. And you realize that those are the limits of his ability. He he can't step over. He can never leave that field. And so that evening, he asks if he can come back and bring the others. And as he walks back into the cornfield, he asks Ray if this is heaven, and Ray kind of laughs and it's like, no, this is Iowa. So there's no question that they have to keep the field. This conversation they had about money is now like, no, we will figure it out. We cannot get rid of this field. Whatever craziness is going on, whatever magic is happening, it's working and this field is very important. Um, so even when Annie's jerk of a banker brother, Mark, tries to convince them to sell. So he is a banker and apparently the bank he works for owns the mortgage to the house. Um, he's like, you have to sell. You're going to go bankrupt. You have to sell. They can't do it because the field is alive. It's alive with the ghost of the White Sox. Eight, who, just like the Sandlot, play a one-sided game. They they practice every single day. They go out on that field. Art LaFleur shows up again, too. He, not as Babe Ruth. That's who he was in the Sandlot. But Chick Gandel, the first baseman, uh, also turns out Annie's brother and family can't see the game. So you kind of have to be a believer to see. So this one-sided game of these old greats, these ghost baseball players is happening. And Mark, the banker, has no idea that it's going on. And they are fighting tooth and nail to kind of keep the place, despite kind of all the odds built up against them. And then a new voice comes along. The new voice says, ease his pain. Another mystery. What pain? Who's pain? And that night, Annie and Ray head to a PTO meeting because they're talking about banning books again. 
Oh, thank goodness we have Annie on our side. Uh, we need more Annie voices and less crazy voices because dear heavens, how is this a topic we are still talking about today? I am... I, it makes me want to scream and break something. The scene got to me more than I anticipated. It also just wanted me to burst into tears because we are still fighting the same battle, this idea of censorship. It's it just make whatever choices you deem appropriate for your family, for your children. You have every right to do that, every right to determine what you want your children to be exposed to or not exposed to. That is that is perfectly fine. I am on your side. But who gives you the right to decide what is right for someone else's family? No one, nothing gives you that right. Nothing. I'm going to stop now. It's okay. It's okay. So anyway, <laughs> this horrible lady at this PTO meeting is expounding on the smut of a book by Terrence Mann. And Annie so beautifully calls her a book burning Nazi cow. It's my favorite line in the whole movie. And she's getting up and she's wanting to fight this lady. But at the same time, she is calm. Like, Ray's like, sit down. What are you doing? Sit down. And she's like, no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. But she, she just talks about freedom and freedom of speech and how censorship goes against our constitutional rights. And she's just, I love her. I love Annie. She's, she's at the top. At, well, the second, cause Kevin Costner's fantastic too. Um, but I just, I adore her in this movie. And the whole time, Rish is kind of sitting there distracted too, because he keeps thinking about this, whose pain is he supposed to ease? And Terrence Mann pops into his head. So he's kind of convinced by the end of this PTO meeting that it's Terrence Mann's pain that he needs to ease. And Annie's like, okay, but how do you know that? And he goes, I don't know. I just know. So, but what's it have to do with baseball? So Ray goes to the library to find out more about the author. And then he discovers that Mann wrote an article in a magazine called This Is Not a Kite. The magazine wasn't called that. The article was. And the hero of the story is one John Kinsella. So he's like, well, this is, this is a sign. He wrote a story, and my father's name was the name of a character. And the author was also a baseball fan, and he was doing some interviews um, when the, the field that the Brooklyn Dodgers, when they left Brooklyn, the field got torn down, and Mann had said, you know what, I wish he was just kind of sad that he never got to to get on that field and play with those those guys, those teams. Um, so he's just kind of wistful about that. So he thinks, Ray thinks, that he is supposed to ease Terrence Mann's pain. Annie's worried about Ray leaving. So he's he's thinking, you know what, I've got to go find Terrence Mann. And Annie's kind of worried because how how can he leave right now when they could potentially lose their farm? Um, but then they discover that they have shared the exact same dream about Ray at Fenway Park with Terrence Mann. And so they are like, nope, you've got to go. Another sign, get in the road, get on the road. So Ray hits the road and he drives all the way from Iowa to Massachusetts, goes to Boston. He starts asking around uh, the neighborhood where he thinks Terrence Mann lives and finally finds someone that can point out where he lives. And the meeting does not go particularly well. Mann isn't super nice. Understandably so, though. He seems, uh, it seems like his time as a public figure kind of left a sour taste in his mouth. And we learn more about that as as kind of this scene progresses but um ray gets kicked out of the apartment and then he he comes back he 
Terrence Mann slams the door, but it doesn't actually latch and close. So Ray comes back into the apartment with his hand in his coat pocket, pretending like he has a gun in his coat pocket. And Terrence Mann's like, it's not a gun. Show me. It's your fingers. You know, he's kind of mocking him. And then uh, the fact that Terrence is a pacifist is the only thing that stops Ray from getting beaten up with a crowbar. He just so, Terrence just so nonchalantly picks this up and he's like, I'm going to be, I'm going to kill you. So after some convincing and like kidnapping, Ray is able to get Terrence Mann to go to a game that evening at Fenway Park. Turns out, and they have this nice conversation as they're walking into the stadium, turns out that the author slash former activist has kind of hidden himself away because he gave everything and lost everyone in his fight during the 60s and 70s. He talked, you know, about Martin Luther King and that kind of, and I think Bobby Kennedy and all these people that rallied behind the same kind of beliefs that he had and everybody kind of gravitated to his literature and expected him to have all of these answers and he just wanted people to start thinking for themselves and so he kind of receded into the the shadows um he also just wants a dog and a beer which i thought was awesome that uh you've been kidnapped by this white dude <laughs> shows up at your door and and pretends to have a gun, but then you let him buy you a hot dog and a beer. It's their friendship as it goes along is just absolutely beautiful. So while they're watching the game, a new voice happens at Fenway Park. It says, go the distance. And on the scoreboard, they get um, some information about the name Moonlight Graham. It shows up. You can see the, the actual what's on the board behind it behind this special message, uh, just kind of like the baseball diamond mirage that he saw in his cornfield. And so Terrence didn't seem to hear or see anything. And, and Ray's a little disappointed at that because he's like, well, I guess you didn't have to be here. I don't know why I had to get you. So they leave the game. Ray drops Terrence back off at his house. Um, when man gets out of the very cool VW van, I didn't even mention that the Kinsellas have a VW van. Uh, Ray then does like a Yui to head the other way back down the street. And the author is in the middle of the road where he says moonlight Graham. And he admits that he both heard and saw the messages. Uh, so this unlikely pair decide to head to Chisholm, Minnesota to find Archibald Moonlight Graham. And when they get there, they find out that Archie Graham went back to college. So he played like one inning and one game in the majors. It didn't work out for him. He ends up going back to college. He becomes a doctor uh, when the baseball career didn't take off. He is well-known and loved throughout this town, and he died in 1972. And that's a bit of a curveball, because how are they supposed to find a dead man? What what would a dead, dead man have to do with this next part of their mysterious journey? Man then talks, Terrence talks to people around town. He kind of starts interviewing people around town. And you see how good he is at that, that kind of journalist writer, um, just how easy at ease he puts people as he's talking to them around town. And they're sharing all of these facts and sweet moments with Dr. Graham. He heads back to the hotel to tell uh, Ray all of this information, what he looked like, his wife, what he meant to Chisholm, Minnesota. And so then uh, Ray's reading a newspaper, and there's an article in it about how Terrence Mann has gone missing. And he's like, oh, goodness. So he has to call somebody. I, I can't remember who he had to call. And so Ray's like, well, I'll give you time to 
call people so they don't think that you've you're lost. Um, so he decides to go for a walk. And on the walk through town, Ray is somehow transported back in time. Posters of Richard Nixon are hung up on the the street corner. The Godfather is showing on the marquee, and he realizes that it's 1972. And then, off in the distance, he sees this man walking down the street in a trench coat holding an umbrella, just like all of the townspeople described Doc Graham of doing. So Ray runs up and officially meets Dr. Graham. Um, he asks if he would like to come. They have this nice conversation at, at Dr. Graham's um, practice, his office. And Ray eventually asks, would you like to come with Terrence and I to Iowa? But Graham turns him down. And as much as he dreamed about playing ball in the majors, he has no regrets. He has this beautiful life that he built for himself with his wife that he loves and a town that he loves. And he's been able to save lives. And so he has no regrets. No, he doesn't want to go. So they're kind of at a loss then. Why were they meant to go to Minnesota? And then Annie calls to let Ray know that the bank is going to foreclose on the farm if they don't sell. So Terrence and Ray know they have to get to Iowa as quickly as possible. Well, Ray was going to send Terrence back, but he's like, no, I've got to see this through all the way to the end. I want to see this field now. And so they hit the road the next day, and they end up picking up a hitchhiker because (laughs) Ray's like, you know what? I need all the good karma I can get. Well, that young man that they pick up ends up being Archie Graham. So they pick up the younger version of Moonlight Graham, and he goes to Iowa with with them. With Archie asleep in the back of the van, Terrence starts to ask Ray about his father. Ray explained that his father never really made it in baseball, so he tried to make his son make it. Um, like they would play all the time, and by the age of 10, it just became a chore. He, like he said, like eating vegetables. Uh, and by the age of 14, Ray just refused to play. It, he just, it made him angry um, and just kind of disconnected from his dad. And he says at one point, can you believe that American boy refusing to play, have a catch with his father? And that's going to come back. So remember that (laughs) at age 17, uh, he packs his things, said something awful to his dad and left. And Terrence is like, well, what awful thing did you say? And it's, it was something about, um, I could never respect a man whose hero is a criminal. And so he's speaking specifically about shoeless Joe Jackson, which he didn't mean, but he knew it would hurt his dad if he said it. Um, and so he leaves and, and they almost, I, maybe they don't speak again. I don't, I, I know they don't see each other again. He's, he talks about after a while he wanted to come home, but he didn't know how to bridge that gap in the relationship. Uh, so it, it does sound like he never saw his dad again. Terrence calls this adventure Ray's penance. He can't bring his father back, but at least he can bring back his father's hero. So they make it back to Iowa to find out that there's more than eight players now on the field. Uh, they have brought some friends so that they can have an actual game, and Terrence has no trouble seeing the game. He sees it Im- immediately. We also get a very quintessential Ray Liotta laugh at one point, that kind of maniacal, <laughs> grinny laugh that he does. And then Archie joins the game. There's a nod of rec- recognition that Archie is exactly where he's supposed to be. So mission accomplished. You have those moments a few times. Like, are the people actively in the story a part of, like, know they're a part of the story? I don't, I'm not explaining that right. But this is young Archie who had not gone to the majors yet, who had not had that one inning in that one game. 
but he also knows that this is where he was supposed to be. Like he, this, he was having his dream fulfilled here, almost like that conversation. He remembered that conversation with Ray as older Graham in the office. Um, so there's a few moments like that. So the next day, Annie's brother shows up, still completely oblivious to what's going on. He can still not see the game. He gets feisty, but Karen chimes in, the little girl Karen chimes in that they don't have to sell. They don't have to sell because people will come to watch the game and remember what it's like to be a kid. And then Terrence chimes in with the same sentiment, adding on that one constant is baseball. Baseball marks time. It's a part of our past. And it keeps going. They will come, Ray. People will come. So at one point, our, you know, the jerky uncle grabs Karen's arm in frustration. She ends up falling off the bleachers and is unconscious. And that's when Archie Graham, young Archie Graham, runs through the players on the field to that edge where he knows that he can't pass and he steps over it and he walks off knowing that there's no going back. The baseball dream will be over, but he walks off because he knows he has to. And he also knows who he is. And the fact that he didn't have any of those regrets, uh, he, he knows what's on the other side. And so he steps over the line, the Archie, from the past becomes the Archie of 1972. And he just comes strolling over with his medical bag, saves Karen, and then walks off into the corn, just kind of content that he had both of his dreams fulfilled. It's just very sweet. I'm not going to cry. I may be crying a little, but it's fine. End of act two. So that ends act two. Um, all of the players are at the field now for this kind of, it's not even a final confrontation, but it is a final conversation. Um, are they going to lose their house or not? They, they know that they cannot give this up. What they have built is something magical and they cannot give it up. They will figure out something to do. And the players are looking at Ray, like, what are you going to do? And he knows that he built it for them, at least partly for them. Um, and so it's, it's all coming to fruition here, which leads us to act three, the resolution. So Mark the jerky uncle is left amazed. <laughs> he can now see the game and he tells them that they most definitely cannot sell. So now Mark is on board. So if the banker's on board, you figure he's going to help them figure something out to keep the field and keep their home. And the players follow after Archie for the day, but promise to come back. And then Joe turns around and asks if Terrence wants to come with them. And Ray gets understandably upset. Why are they asking Terrence when he built this entire field? What is in it for him? And, and Joe's like, well, did you do it to have it, you know, to have something for you? Why did you do this? Um, and he just keeps, I think you should stay, Ray. I think you should stay. And then Terrence talks about that interview that he did, that he had actually told Ray he hadn't done about, um, wishing he could have played at Ebbets Field before it was torn down. And Terrence thinks he was chosen to tell this story, to write again, something he had not done in a very long time. Um, so he he needs to go and, and kind of see. And so they have this very genuine conversation. I want to know everything. Ray's like, I, you, you have to tell me everything. And so he steps into the onto the field and towards the cornfield, with this giant smile on his face. And James Earl Jones has the most amazing smile, just the most amazing smile. And then he disappears into the cornfield. 
So then Ray turns and is about to walk off with Annie to go to the house. And then he looks back at the field and he sees Joe just staring at him. Just Joe. Joe's the only one left on the field that he, you know, that we have seen. Um, And he says, if you build it, he will come. And Ray looks towards home plate where the catcher is taking off his gear. And it is his father. It was his own pain that he needed, that needed to be eased. So John Kinsella walks towards them, a young man, years younger than when Ray entered the world. And Ray introduces him to his family. And they walk and talk for a bit. And this time, John asks if it's heaven, just like Ray, or not Ray, <laughs> um, just like jo- uh, Joe had. And Ray answers the same thing. This is Iowa. And as John grabs his gear and heads out to the corn, uh, well, there before that, though, there's a moment where uh, Ray asks John, you know, what is there a heaven? And John's like, yeah, I think it's a place where dreams come t- true. And you see Ray look at his house where his wife is sitting on the porch and his daughter's sitting there. And he looks out on his land and his farm and this dream that he built. And he's like, you know what? I don't know. Maybe this is heaven. So John is heading towards the cornfield and he's grabbing his gear and then Ray yells, hey, dad, and do you want to have a catch? And you see tears in both men's eyes. So it's just like that moment with Archie that he knows Uh, it's a younger version of him, but he knows. And so father and son find their way back to one another playing catch on this dream field that Ray had built. And I'm a blubbering mess at this point in the movie. Every time, it does not matter how many times I watch this thing. And then in the distance, you see the cars, lots of cars coming because people will come, Ray. People will most definitely come. And that is the end of the movie. A few interesting tidbits. The interior scenes were the first one shot because the cornfield planted by the filmmakers was taking too long to grow. Irrigation had to be used to quickly grow the corn to Costner's height. Primary shot locations were in Dubuque County, Iowa. A farm near Dyersville was used for the Kinsella home. An empty warehouse in Dubuque was used to build various interior sets. Galena, Illinois? I don't, I've not heard of that. Served as Moonlight Graham's Chisholm... Minnesota, and one week was spent on location shots in Boston, most notably Fenway Park. During a lunch with the Iowa Chamber of Commerce, Robinson broached his idea of a final scene in which the headlights would be seen for miles along the horizon. The chamber folk replied that it would be done, it could be done, and the shooting of the final scene became a community event. The film crew was hidden on the farm to make sure the aerial shots did not reveal them. A production assistant drove from the set into town and measured the distance between, deducing it would require about 1,500 cars to fill the shot. Dyersville was then blacked out and the local extras drove their vehicles to the field. In order to give the illusion of movement, the drivers were instructed to continuously switch between their low and high beams. The character played by Burt Lancaster and Frank Whaley, Archibald Moonlight Graham, is based on an actual baseball player with the same name. His character is largely true to life except for a few factual liberties taken for artistic reasons. For instance, the real Graham's lone major league game occurred in June 1905 rather than on the final day of the 1922 season. The real Graham died in 1965 as opposed to 72 as the film depicts. 
The then unknown Ben Affleck and Matt Damon are among the thousands of extras in the Fenway Park scene and are uncredited, of course. Over a decade later, when Phil Alden Robinson welcomed Affleck to the set of The Sum of All Fears, which came out in 2002, Affleck said, nice working with you again. Robinson asked, what do you mean again? And Affleck explained the connection. Um, This was Burt Lancaster's final feature film and the movie's line of if you build it he will come was voted as the number 39 movie quote by the american film institute out of 100 top 100 they used to do these shows i don't know if you ever watched them where it was an afi top 100 and they would go through it might have been over the course of a couple nights they would go through the top 100 films the top 100 quotes they don't do that anymore. And I, I haven't looked in a while to see if they have updated the list. I know they do it every few years, um, but I wish they would do those shows again. I really, <laughs> no surprise to anyone. I like list shows that talk about the movies and that kind of thing. There was also a series a few years ago where it was like the movies by decade, which was fascinating because not only did you get conversations about a lot of different films and actors, but you also better understood the context of the films, what was happening in movie making and filmmaking in Hollywood during those particular decades. So that was really good. I think it was just called the movies by decade or something like that, if you want to look it up. All right, the top five reasons why you should watch. The Field of Dreams. Uh, one, it just feels like summer. It's not completely set in the summer, but much like The Sandlot and just about every baseball movie, it feels like summer. So if you are wanting some of that kind of, hey, grab a beer, eat a hot dog feel, watch this movie. That's number one. Number two, Kevin Costner. There's something, he's a good actor. He's just a good actor. I think he's been in so much and um, we hear about him a little more right now because of Yellowstone, but his filmography is so good. So good. There's some really cruddy movies in there too, but he is just really good, especially as this guy next door. And that's what Ray is. There's this genuine genuineness to him that you could meet him on the side of the road and have this conversation with him and this eagerness and it he plays vulnerable really well in this movie so that's number two number three the score uh there are just moments it's not an overwhelming score that you're like it's not like last of the mohicans where i can hear one part of the score and know exactly what part of the movie that is because it is just beautiful from start to finish um but the score itself is beautiful. It was direct. It was composed by James Horner. Um, it just has this light, again, light, whimsical feel to it. Um, number four, Amy Madigan as Annie. She might be the best pop culture movie wife. She is so supportive and funny and intelligent and charismatic, and I just absolutely loved her. So if you want this fierce woman who is a feminist but just – uh, just a warrior. Watch this movie. I loved it. And number five, it's the game. It's the game of baseball. Uh, if you love baseball and want that kind of nostalgic feel and exactly what this movie talks about, how it kind of connects our past and you can just see how you know important the game has been to American culture for so very long and what it's like to sit at a ball diamond just like Shoeless Joe talks about the sounds and the smells uh, if you just need that kind of little moment in your summer you should definitely rewatch this movie does it hold up yes
It holds up 100%. I can't think of anything that doesn't hold up in this movie. It holds up really well. And there's not a whole lot that really, really dates it. Um, especially it, one would have hoped that talking about banning books in the 1980s would have dated it. But no, that's a thing that is still happening. So it holds up very well. Um, nothing squidgy or uncomfortable about it. It's just, it's a really, it's a really good movie. What prop would I like if I was building my own pop culture museum? Uh, I've thought a lot about this and I, I think I would want, I, I mean, I would like to just pick up the set and take it with me. Uh, but I, I have that memory, so I don't need to do that. But I'm going to say, um, Shoeless Joe Jackson's hat, but the old, the old white socks uniform, something like that, I think would be great. Um, or maybe the ball that Ray plays catch with his dad. Do you want to have a catch? Oh my goodness. I'm not going to cry uh, again. No more crying. Um, so may maybe that ball, that ball that Ray finally got to play catch with his dad. Movie night recommendations. So if you want to make this a whole thing, a whole night, you have some options. Of course you could go, um, I, you could, you could do a twist baseball. It's going we're going to get to the baseball recommendation here in just a second. Uh, personally, I think you should just go all in, in Iowa. <laughs> you could fair feel the dreams with something like the musical state fair or the music man. Uh, you could stay dramatic with the bridges of Madison County. And apparently twister was actually filmed in Iowa, even though I think it's set in Oklahoma. So, you know what? You could either just stay Iowa, which is, you know, not a bad call but if you want a little better pairing, I think you could go with 2002's The Rookie, starring Dennis Quaid as this Texas baseball coach who loves the game and finally makes the major leagues after agreeing to try out for his high school. After his, so it was a bet. His high school team wins the playoffs. He will try out for a major league team. So it's a story about fulfilled dreams and second chances. And sadly, there were just not enough weeks in June, aka baseball month on the pod to, to talk about this one or to talk about a league of their own, which I will, I will fit in somewhere else. I will figure it out. Um, cause I'm really sad. I'm not going to be talking about that one. Cause that is also almost a perfect movie book recommendations. The obvious first recommendation is to read Shoeless Joe by W.P. Kinsella. One should always read the book a movie is based on. One should probably do that first, but exceptions can be made uh, because it's not like Shoeless Joe was this mainstream, widely known thing before the movie came out. So, or for today's viewer. So it's okay if you haven't read it, but you, you should. You should go back and read it. We listened to it on the way to Dyersville. Um, we always try to pick up, usually we start an audiobook at least, but we get distracted with Sirius XM in the sixties music, but, uh, it was a good, it was good. I enjoyed it. I also discovered there's a book called chasing moonlight, the true story of field of dreams. Graham by Brett Friedlander and Robert W. Rising. Uh, good from, good for me. I have access to the book on Libby through my local public library. Do you have a library card? You should totally get a public library card if you don't have one. Um, so I've added that to my summer read pile. I also, did I mention this in the tidbits? I can't remember if I did. They said, so Doc Graham was this real guy, right? And um, some people in the town and that he grew up in or lived, you know, worked in had heard that, that they were talking about his character, of course, again, with some of those movie liberties, but the people that he is 
that Terrence Mann is interviewing throughout the town are these people that actually knew the original Doc Graham. So the stories they were telling were real stories about Doc Graham and the blue hats for the wife and um, how he always carried around a cane. Just kind of beautiful. So two options to kind of stick with the movie uh, in case you are interested. And that is all I have for you today. Again, it was a long one. I'm sorry. But thank you so much for listening. Really, it is so, so appreciated. Uh, I hope that you subscribe so that we can keep going on this journey together. Next week is um, Major League, and then we're going to do Bull Durham and kind of finalize this month of baseball. And if you are subscribed, it will just automatically pop in what up, pop up in whatever app you listen to your podcast in. And again, if you've got the time, it would be really awesome if you could share the show with others who like random conversations about pop culture with someone who doesn't really know what they're talking about, uh, but that's okay because it's a fun conversation and they can join in on the fun as well. You can follow me on Instagram at, at @gnomegirlm and on Facebook at A Bit of Fun with Emily. Go have yourself a bit of fun today, and I will see you next time.